We are in Genesis chapter 13 this morning, and we will read that in just a few minutes. I want you to consider this, though. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be blind? Uh, I was talking with Isaiah the other day about how sometimes it can be so dark that you can have your hand right in front of your face and you cannot see a thing. Maybe if you're in a, a deep cavern or... Uh, when we were out on the men's retreat, I got up in the middle of the night and I could not see a thing. So I'm walking cautiously, guarding my face especially. Um, but have you ever considered what it would be like to be blind? Someone, you, you are completely dependent upon someone else to guide you around. Um, l- someone else must lead them uh, down a path, down steps. Uh, the blind person is dependent on them saying, okay, a step's coming here, a curb's coming here. They're putting their complete trust in that other person. Or maybe you've done the exercise where you're blindfolded and someone guides you by their words around certain obstacles so that you can make it to the goal. It's not a very comfortable situation. But really, the life of faith is like this. The life of faith is one of sometimes uncertainty where we can't, see all the realities that are around us, but we must trust in the words of another to guide us along the way. We must be completely dependent on the wisdom of another rather than our own wisdom in order to get to our destination. Our life of faith is one of not sight, but of dependence upon another. In our text Today in in chapter 13 of Genesis, we see a contrast between two men, between Abraham and Lot, between uh, one who is living by faith and one who is living by sight. Abraham is the man of faith. And in this text, he serves as a good example to us. Now, he's not perfect by any means. And we see that in chapter 12, that in chapter 12, he is living in fear, not by faith. But in our our text this morning, we see that he is serving as a good example of a life of faith. And this is a reminder of what our lives will be like. Ups and downs, doubts and fears, struggles to believe what we know we ought to believe, struggles to depend upon Christ in every situation. We have been tracking uh, the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Humanity, after the fall, has been unable to get back to a right relationship with God, unable to restore all that was broken in the fall. Even the most promising men come to failure. In chapter 12, God calls Abram to leave his family and his home to a land that he would show him, and God makes promises to him. I will give you this land. I will... Uh, increase your offspring. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. Famine threatened their lives. And so they went down to Egypt where they would find food. And Abraham was motivated by fear, not faith, when he had Sarai tell the Egyptians she was his sister. And so yet again, we see hopes for humanity dashed in human failure. Yet God still shows mercy. He still shows 
His faithfulness. Despite Abram's deception, God leads him out of Egypt. And how does he lead him out? With great wealth. Plundering the Egyptians, basically. It reminds us of when the Israelites left out of Egypt with great riches. And then we read in Genesis 13, 1 through 18. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had in Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. First, I want you to notice just the, st- the structure of the narrative, which is, is common throughout the Old Testament. There's the, the, the original setting or the occasion of Abram and Lot coming out of Egypt with great wealth. Then there's a growing tension uh, we see between the herdsmen and between Abram and Lot. There's, there's a problem that must be solved. And then Abram Uh, proposes a solution. How will we we resolve this this tension, this great problem, which moves then to final resolution? After coming out of Egypt, Abram goes back to the place of worship. And by doing this, uh, I think the author wants us to see that he is reaffirming his faith. After his deception, he's reaffirming his faith in the God of the promise. The one who had called him out of Ur. Here we see uh, the faithfulness of God and the faith of His servant. Our theme for this text is this. 
God's faithfulness moves us to live by faith and not by sight. God's faithfulness moves us to live by faith and not by sight. In this life, we will be tempted to live based on what we see rather than what God has said. We will be tempted to live and behave as if this world and this life uh, on this world is all that there is. But we must reject all of that. We are pilgrims sojourning in a foreign land, holding out hope for a better land, a better country, the eternal promised land whose builder and designer is God. And the way we walk as pilgrims is by faith and not by sight. And this will look different. It will look peculiar and sometimes odd to those who are around us. So let's consider what the life of faith will look like from Abram's example in this story. If you're taking notes, I'll be giving four main headings. Uh, Three of those points will be situations in which we are called to live by faith. And then the final point is how all of these situations are framed by worship. So those three situations in which we must live by faith, God's faithfulness moves us to live by faith in the midst of relational strife, in the midst of worldly temptations, and in the midst of outwardly difficult circumstances. And all of those situations are framed by worshiping the one true and faithful God. So first, let's, look at, let's consider this point. God's faithfulness moves us to live by faith in the midst of relational strife. So what's the problem? There was first a famine in the land that led Abram and his family to move to Egypt. But what causes this strife is almost the opposite. It is the wealth that Abram and Lot have come out of Egypt with that causes this strife. We're often quick to notice how poverty can cause strife, how poverty, how lack can cause problems. We're often slow to consider how wealth and abundance can cause strife in our relationships. And this is the case with Abram and Lot. There's this growing tension between Abram's kinsmen and Lot's kinsmen. They're, they're not, there's, there's too many people. There are too many, uh, too, there's too much possessions. And on top of this, the Canaanites and the Perizzites are in the land. Their, their herds, their flocks, their people are too many in number, and so it causes friction. There's not enough resources. How are they going to have enough to live together, to, to walk together? And so Abram proposes a solution. He takes the initiative to solve this problem. And notice how generous Abram's proposed solution is. He says, you choose. We must separate from one another. And you choose. I'm going to give you the choice of the land. If you go one way, then I'll go the other. Choose whatever you'd like. Now what makes this so generous of Abram is first that he is the senior of the two. Abram is Lot's uncle. He is in a place of seniority over Lot. Lot is the one who follows him out of Ur. When God calls Abram to leave his family, to leave his home, he leaves and Lot follows along behind him. But not only is Abram in a place of seniority over Lot, it's Abram's land. Now, ultimately, we know that it's God's land. God created the whole world and everything in it. 
This land belongs to God, but it is Abram's land because God has given it to him by promise. See that at the beginning of of chapter 12. This land I will give to you and to your offspring. It is Abram's by divine promise. And yet Abram places his life, his future in the hands of God. By offering it to Lot. By saying, you choose. Let us separate. You choose left or right and I'll go the other way. Abraham is moved by God's faithfulness to live by faith. To propose a solution of peace where there was strife. It was because of his faith that he is able to lay down his own rights for the sake of peace with Lot. Notice what he could have done versus what he actually did. What could have Abram done? What would he have been within his rights to do? To say, this is my land, Lot, separate. You go that way. He could have chosen for himself. He could have grasped what belonged rightfully to him. He could have pulled rank on Lot and said, listen, nephew, this is my land and you're going to have to go somewhere else. But that's not what he did. He moved by trusting in God, moved by his faith in God, was able to lay down his own seniority, his own authority, his own rights for the sake of peace with Lot. Living by faith moves us to give up our rights for the sake of others. So consider what what are you tempted to do in the midst of relational strife? With, with your spouse, what are you tempted to do when there, there becomes strife in your relationship? Are you not prone to assert your rights? To assert that you are right? That you know better? What about between parents and children? How do you react when you encounter strife in your relationships? You can consider it at, uh, with bosses, with co-workers. Do you assert your authority? You lay down the law or maybe uh, you pursue passive aggressive behavior or gossip or go behind others' backs. Why do you do that? Why are we so prone to, to claim, to grasp after our own rights rather than laying down our rights for the sake of others, for the sake of peace? Well, ultimately, you can trace it back to an unbelief in God. To not believing that God will take care of your needs. To not believing that He is working for your good. Think about it. If you don't believe that God is sovereign, if you don't believe that He works good for those who are His in Christ, then you won't be able to put others first. You won't be able to lay down your own rights for the sake of others. You'll have to grab what's yours. You'll have to demand your rights. You'll have to take what belongs to you no matter what it does to others. Because if no one else is going to look after you, you have to look out for yourself. Your inability to put others first isn't just selfishness. It is unbelief in God. But if you trust in God, 
If you believe that he is working all things together by his wise and good counsel and purposes, if you believe that he loves you fully in Christ, then you are free to give up your rights for the sake of others and for the sake of peace. Old Testament professor Bruce Waltke says, Christians are to relinquish their rights in order to enrich others, trusting God's promises to provide. Abraham, secure in God, can give up his land. And when we are secure in Christ, we do not have to grasp greedily for possessions. So examine your actions. How do you respond to personal strife? When there's conflict, when there's division in your relationships. Is your life generally, are are your actions characterized by laying down your rights for the sake of others or by grasping what belongs to you? Demanding your rights or generously giving to others? But we can't just stop at examining our behaviors because that's not all there is. It's not just your outward behavior that God sees. It's also our inward motives. If you don't give up your rights for the sake of others, what's the problem? What, what is it that is causing you to assert your own authority? But if, your life, if you can look at your life and say, yeah, generally I do lay down my, my rights for the sake of others, for the sake of peace, I defer to others, then you must also consider what's the motive behind that. Because it's possible to do the right thing with the wrong motive. It's possible to defer to others with a totally ungodly and selfish motive. To look good in front of others. To look humble. I'm really good at that. To maneuver for returned favors. If I scratch your back, you can scratch mine later. You owe me. Or it might even be to twist God's arm. To say, because I am generous in this way, because I defer to others, because I serve others in this way, God, you owe me. Justifying yourself before God by your goodness. By the fact that you are able to lay down your rights for others. Because I've participated in so many uh, funerals and been there when uh, people have lost loved ones. Um, I've seen one of the most devastating relational conflicts can be who gets the inheritance. Maybe you've seen something like this yourself. Maybe you've been through something like this yourself. But I have, I've seen several examples where uh, when when a parent dies, <clears throat> the other parent or the children they want what's coming to them. They must have their portion, which belongs to them. And they get so short-sighted in seeing those material possessions and what, what they need that they forget about the love that they have shared with one another for so many years. I've seen an example where Uh, Brother and sister don't even really talk to each other anymore. And it's all because they're living by sight rather than by faith. They're not able to lay down their own rights for the sake of others, for the sake of their own brothers or sisters, for the sake of their own family. 
But the one who is living by faith lays down his rights for the sake of his friends. Because God is faithful, he's a peacemaker. He seeks peace. He knows ultimately that everything is a gift from God, and so he is able to trust in God for his future. And really, this is the way of the kingdom. What does Jesus teach us? The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you must become the servant of all. And not only is it the way of the kingdom, it's the way of our master. Who thought, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He laid down his rights for the sake of others. The example of Abram points us to the person and work of Christ, but Lot, on the other hand, doesn't get it. The right move for Lot would have been to defer to his uncle, it would have been maybe to figure out a plan so that they could remain together, but instead he chooses based on his own wisdom, he chooses based on sight. He's not living by faith, he's living by sight. God's faithfulness moves us to live by faith, not only in the midst of relational strife, but also in the midst of worldly temptations. God's faithfulness moves us to live by faith in the midst of worldly temptations. Abram is living by faith, but Lot is living by sight. Get verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. The author wants us to consider the similarities between Lot's choice and the choice of one who came earlier in the story. He wants us to consider the similarities, the parallels between Lot's choice and Eve's choice. Remember Eve in the garden? She saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was beautiful, desirable. And so what did she do? She reached out and took it. So Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the land was good, desirable, beautiful. So he reached out and took it. And in the same way that Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east, Lot, journeyed east, and we are told, moved his tent as far as Sodom. The author makes special notes, verse 10 and verse 13, about Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 10, this, he gives us a parenthesis that the Lord, this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 13, he says, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Those who were reading this would know the rest of the story, just like we do. Sodom and Gomorrah, we know, had fire rained down upon it, was destroyed, and just became a huge ash heap because of the sinfulness there. The author wants us to see this contrast. Abram settles in the land of Canaan, and Sodom uh, and Lot settles in the land of Sodom. For the author, he, geography is not only telling us something about location. It's also telling us something about where 
God's blessing dwells. And here it dwells clear, clearly with Abram and not with Lot. Lot chose his portion according to worldly wisdom, but he ignored the deeper spiritual realities. He ignored the ugly wickedness because of the beautiful appearance of the land. And the consequences will be severe. As John Calvin said, Lot thought he was dwelling in paradise, but he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. There are two types of wisdom. There's godly wisdom and there's worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says you only live once, so grab everything you can while you're here. Scoop it all up and carry it throughout this life. Godly wisdom says there is eternal life. There is the second death, and we must choose wisely. Worldly wisdom says go after your best life right now, here on this earth. Godly wisdom says in Christ, your best life will only come later. Will only come after journeying through this difficult life with faith in God. Worldly wisdom says go with what pleases you. If it feels good, do it. If you like it, go after it. But godly wisdom says you go after what pleases God. We are tempted in many ways with worldly wisdom. We are tempted by the things that we see. We are tempted by materialism and greed. We are tempted uh, in lust. We are tempted for instant gratification. We are tempted to go after the here and now with everything we've got. I know of a story of a man who is on his way to destruction. He by all appearances, seemed to be a godly man, was a part of a, a Bible-believing church, a Reformed church. And yet through beginning to be led astray by things of this world, by worldly temptations, he met a woman online and now is throwing away life with his wife and children, with his church, to pursue this other woman. How does this happen? How does something like that happen? He's being led by his desire for the here and now. He is going after what he thinks will make him happy right now in this present life. He's going for instant gratification. If you only live once, then you better get out of any situation you don't like and get into the situation that will please you. Let this example warn us to guard our lives. Guard your life. Look not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. Look not to the temporal, just the here and now. Remember eternity. Guard your life. Guard your vision. Make sure that you are Living not by sight, but by faith. Consider what happens when you're led by sight. Consider what happens when we are pulled away by worldly temptations. When we don't walk by faith in the midst of temptation. Adam and Eve lived by sight rather than faith. 
terrible consequences. Cast out of the Garden of Eden. Death. Suffering. This is why we're in this mess that we are right now. Not that we would have done any better. Lot chooses based on what he sees, what is beautiful in appearance. And he almost loses his life. Remember King David, who was led astray by his eyes and lost his, his son as a result. So much more. Consider your own life. Look, look back over your own life and consider those times when you have made decisions based on sight, based on the here and now, rather than living by faith. Would you say that those things generally worked out well for you or that they worked out badly? We know this from biblical history and from our own history that living by sight rather than by faith results in in terrible consequences. Living by faith, though, will require fighting against worldly temptations. It's not easy. Yeah, we can see the history uh, throughout history and throughout our own lives, but that doesn't make it any easier to fight the temptations here and now. This is going to be a battle for us to fight living by sight, to fight what we see with our eyes, to fight these temptations. Jesus reminds us of how serious the situation is when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It's a fight, but it's a fight of faith. It's not just self-denial. And asceticism. It's a fight against unbelief. It's a fight to believe that what God has told us is true. This is why we have to depend on God's word, on his promises. A life of faith is a life trusting in God's word. This brings us to our next point. God's faithfulness moves us to live by faith in the midst of outwardly difficult circumstances. Despite maybe what we see. So we've seen Abram's generous offer to Lot. And now we see God's generous promise to Abram. He reaffirms the promise. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Lot lifts his eyes in self-fulfillment, but Abram lifts his eyes in obedience to the Lord's command. Do you see the contrast between the two? Lot is grasping for himself and Abram is receiving the promise of God. Notice the promises that God reaffirms to Abram. Notice also that the nature of these promises means that Abram won't live to see their fulfillment. He has promised the land to Abram and to his offspring forever. Look north, south, east, and west, er, west, everything that you see. This land, I will give it to you and your offspring. And the promise of the offspring. Go ahead and count the grains of dust on the earth. 
That's what your offspring will be like. If you can count the dust of the earth, you'll you'll be able to count the number of your offspring. And God's promises here tip us off to the real problem underlying the problem of strife. See, it's not, this story is not just about overcoming strife and division. Some have preached that, that message. But then if you do that, you can't make much sense of God's promises here. It just seems to, okay, where, where did those promises come from? The problem is the land, ultimately. He's facing outwardly difficult circumstances. Things that seem by sight to be an obstacle you couldn't, couldn't overcome. These circumstances threaten the promise. Is the land sufficient if it can't hold Abram and Lot and all their herds and people? Did Abram forfeit part of the land to Lot when he offered up, choose which side you will go? How will Abram get the land since it's filled with Canaanites and Perizzites? God reassures Abram that he is faithful. That he will keep his promises of the land and of his offspring. And he reaffirms his promise to Abram. Lot grasps the good land for himself. But Abram simply receives the promises from God. And in this story at least, Abram models for us the life of faith. He's resting not on his own wisdom or his ability to gain the land for himself. He is simply resting in the promises of God. Even though it looks like there's no way... He will get the land. Even though it looks like there's no way these things could be true. We are often tempted to doubt God because of outward circumstances. So you have a bank statement and you do not know how the bills are going to get paid. You you see what's there and there's no way to calculate it to work it out. Or you're wanting to sell your house and it seems like nobody wants to buy it. (laughs) Maybe you have health problems and you don't see an end in sight for those getting any better. But God has promises for us as well. God God has promises for you in Christ. And He not only makes promises, He keeps His promises. He has promised that He is working all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Christ has promised his disciples he will never leave us or forsake us. And we have the promise that no circumstance, no disease, no difficulties, not even death itself can separate us from the love of God in Christ. These are precious promises from God that you can bank on. In the midst of your frightening or frustrating circumstances, where is your hope? On what or on whom are you resting? On your own wisdom or strength? On your own strategies? Or maybe you're so focused on the circumstance itself that you forget who God is and who you are in Christ. Through your faith in Christ, you have been adopted into God's family. You have become sons and daughters of God. You have been made a child of God and you are an heir of all the promises of God. You may be struggling at the moment, but take hard heart that this is not all that there is. This is not your home. 
there is a better land. Receive these promises by faith. Believe in God. He has made generous promises and he intends to keep them, every single one of them. And where else would we go? What else is there to do except to trust in God? He has the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? What's the alternative? But not only that, consider how worry is a bitterness to the soul. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. There's a, a Swedish proverb which says, Worry often gives a small thing a big shadow. And I'd add, but faith gives even big things small shadows. Or at least, even the big shadows get swallowed up when we are resting in the shadow of the Almighty. Make no mistake, God is faithful and we can rest in His promises. And when we cling in faith to what God has promised and have confidence that what He has promised will be fulfilled, it leads us to worship Him. When we are reminded of the faithfulness of God, it will inevitably lead us to worship. So this is the the last point, and it's the shortest one, but it's it's not parallel to all the other uh, points that we've made. This really is the, the context of the life of faith, which is worship. Our life of faith, our pilgrimage through this life is framed by worship of the one true and faithful God. At the beginning of chapter 13, Abram recalls the promise of God. We know this because of where he goes. He goes to where he was before, where God had commanded him to dwell. And there he builds an altar to the Lord and worships him. He calls on the name of the Lord. And then in verse 18, we read that Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God reaffirms his promise to Abram. Abram lifts up his eyes and believes the promise. He walks the length and breadth of it, claiming it as, as, it as his own, and it leads him to worship. The author frames this story with Abram building an altar, worshiping the Lord. A life of faith is framed by worship of the one true God. This is who we are. We are to be a worshiping people. In the midst of relational strife, in the midst of worldly temptations, in the midst of outwardly difficult circumstances, we are to worship Him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whether things are good or whether things are bad, whether our future looks bright or whether it's bleak, bless the name of the Lord. Abram worships not simply according to his own desires. He builds an altar. Before we even learn about the sacrificial system, he is offering sacrifices to God. And we are called to worship. All of life is worship. But in particular, we are called to worship him in certain ways by singing his praises, by hearing the reading and the preaching of his word, by praying together, by celebrating the Lord's Supper and celebrating baptism. And when we do these things, we are responding to God's promises. 
Worship is a response to God. He has the first word. He acts and speaks and promises. And we respond in worship. So consider your own life of worship. Consider also what your worship is. Is it just what you do on Sunday mornings? Is it merely to get re-energized and pumped up for the week ahead? To try to get God on your good side, to try and make up for all the bad things you've done throughout the week? What is your worship? Is your worship a response of gratitude for the faithfulness and graciousness of God? Consider the faithfulness of God. Consider that He created His people and they rebelled. He rescued them from Egypt and they grumbled. He gave them victory over their enemies and they went after idols. He gave them prophets and He killed them. He sent them His only Son and they crucified Him. And He cried, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. See, Abram points us to Christ. Christ is the one who walks by faith and not by sight. Even when Satan took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and says, uh, bow down and worship me and I will give you all of this. He didn't live by sight. He didn't live for the moment. He didn't live for immediate gratification. What did he do but rest in the word of God? You shall worship the Lord your God. And serve him only, he quoted. And he sacrificed not only his rights and desires, but his very life for the sake of others. As he died on the cross for sinners, the serpent bruised his heel, but Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he has gone there and is preparing a place for us. The homeland to which we are journeying. But it's not time to go yet. We still have a journey to make. God is still adding to his offspring through Christ. He's not done having the grains of dust of the earth counted. Consider, are you a part of that offspring of Abram? Do you belong to this family of God? And the answer doesn't have to do with whether you're a regular attender at church. It doesn't have to do with whether you you think you're a good person or not. It has to do with this. Have you come to see that Christ crucified for your sins and risen from the dead is your only hope? Have you come to see that? Have you come to, to know that? Have you come to see that He is the only one who will satisfy all of your longings? If you see that, then you are truly seeing by faith. And you will belong to the people of faith, the sons and daughters of Abram and heirs to the kingdom of God. But consider also, who do you know in your family or friends who are not a part of the people of God, who do not belong to the offspring of Abram? God is adding to their number even now, and he has called us to participate in that by sharing the gospel, by proclaiming the faithfulness of God. Who can you come alongside in the midst of their difficulties? In the midst of their relational strifes? In the midst of their temptation? And show them that living by faith in Christ is the only way that we will ever reach our final goal. We will ever reach satisfaction in this life 
and eternal life in the next. God is faithful. Consider His faithfulness and let us endeavor to walk, not by sight, but by faith. By faith in Him alone. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we pray that during this closing song, You would move our hearts and our minds to consider the faithfulness of God to consider your faithfulness over and over and over again, not only throughout history, but throughout our lives. And we pray that you would cause us to respond in faith and in worship, in eager and genuine worship at who you are. As we raise our voices, we pray that you would raise our hearts to trust in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.